You're listening to DevOps and Docker Talk, and I'm your host, Brett Fisher. I'm a cloud-native DevOps course creator, consultant, and manager of this growing community on cloud-native DevOps. This podcast is an edited-down, audio-only version of my YouTube live show, which airs on Thursdays at brett.live. This podcast and all the free stuff I create is made possible by my supporting members. Thank you all so much for your continued patronage. There are well over 100 of you buying me a coffee every month, which makes that just 1% of the people that read, watch, or listen to this content every month. I'm hoping we can double that to 2% this year. And as they say, membership has its privileges. So you can find out how to support this show, my cloud native training, and our DevOps community at brettfisher.com. In this episode, Matt and I are joined by Brendan Burns, the co-founder of the Kubernetes Project and a corporate vice president at Microsoft working on Azure Cloud Native. Because Brendan is one of the three original co-founders of the Kubernetes Project back in 2013 at Google, he's a little bit internet famous in open source and cloud native. So I was a little nervous going into this because I had so many questions. We could have spent multiple shows on everything from the origin of Kubernetes, how it started out, to what he's working on at Azure. And a lot of those topics have already been covered in so many other great interviews with him in podcasts and keynotes and all that stuff over the years. So we took some live questions, as we always do, from YouTube Live. And I thought it was a really great episode of a little mix of talking about Azure and some of the things you can do with containers there, an increasing amount, in fact, of things you can do with containers on Azure, talking about some of the things they're working on, some of the things that he's focused on that we haven't seen yet. We talk about AI and how that relates to some of these things. We even talk about WASM or WebAssembly, one of my favorite topics of the last year, and how the WASM, WASI container, cloud-native WebAssembly, we're kind of calling it. There's a lot of buzzwords there. But we talk about that for a bit because that's important. And I think that's a very new part of the container landscape that's still trying to be figured out. And Azure was early on that, so it was great to get his perspective. And I think my favorite part of the show is where we really talk about the next layers of abstraction, or maybe even the ways that we can deploy to Kubernetes or make it simpler to manage and deploy to. And that's been a real challenge for the community ever since Kubernetes was created in making it more accessible to more people without it being so complex to manage and deal with underneath. And he has some really great views on what it's going to take it to get us there. So please enjoy this conversation with Brendan Burns of Microsoft. Hello, I'm Brett. This is Matt. Hi, Matt. Hi. All right, let's get to it. So on the show today, we're very excited to have Brendan Burns from Microsoft. Hello. Hey there. Nice. In case you didn't know who Brendan was, maybe he's been all over the internet for quite some time now. And in fact, before the show, my wife and I were watching some of the videos that all the interviews you've done over the years about the Kubernetes project. But if you didn't know, Brendan is the corporate vice president at Microsoft overseeing Azure cloud native and resource management. And before that, long ago, this was a long time ago, it seems like in the internet years, you were one of the co-creators of the Kubernetes project. And now you're essentially running cloud native at Microsoft. So... What's that all about? What what do your day-to-days look like when you're running Azure Cloud Native? Yeah, so I mean, it's a it's it varies, I would say, depending on the day. Yesterday I started out with like a intern talk. It's intern season. 
So, okay. you know, we have interns coming in and I sort of did the welcome and 101. And like, you have to actually be like, it's funny because you spend, we've been doing this for 10 years, longer, and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm going to actually have to sit people down and be like, okay, they, this is a virtual machine. Like, this is how a virtual machine is yeah. implemented. Like, there's all this detail that's just assumed, right? But like, if you're coming straight out of college, I mean, hopefully they've kicked around the cloud a little bit, but maybe not, you know, yeah, especially sense. if they're a junior, like a junior, and they've had two years, maybe two and a half years of courses. So that was, it kind of gave them like a little bit of a 101, which was fun. I used to be a professor, so I like doing oh, that kind of stuff. Nice. You know, and then also the organization, the resource management part of it is actually all of the APIs and, you know, templates and the command line tools and the web portal for Azure all up, right? So probably mm-hmm. half my life is actually in how do we do policy and access control and governance and user interface design and stuff like that for Azure, for all of Azure. Mm. And then the other half of my life is in cloud native and Linux, cloud native and Linux too, right? So like people who are doing what we would sort of call, I don't know if you call it legacy Linux or like I started a company before 2008 Linux, but like, okay. you know, J2ME or just not J2ME, J2EE on Linux style mm. stuff, you know, where people aren't necessarily in containers. And it's a big org. It's about a thousand engineers all up total. So there's a lot of just kind of like the nuts and bolts of running a large wow. org, but also like trying to hack, you know, I think we're going to talk later about like WebAssembly and stuff like that. So I've yeah. been trying to kind of keep my finger in the cloud native community out in the open source land too. I maintain the Kubernetes clients for a bunch of different languages, Java and .NET and JavaScript, TypeScript. So that allows me to kind of stay connected without being mission critical. Right. And I know it. At a lot of big companies, you can progress through your career ladder and stay individual contributor versus switching over to the full-time manager. Are you... It sounds I'm a very full-time manager. Yeah, I'm a very full-time okay. manager. I'm like, the, I'm the pointy hero okay. boss for sure. I think you can still, you know, stay technical and still yeah. stay connected. But like, I think one of the things you realize at a point in your career is you have to figure out like how much impact do you want to have? Yeah, And if you want to have really, really, really big impact, I just don't think you can do it without, at some level, directing an organization. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes that means you're, uh, you know, sort of a, more of a architect influence on it, or sometimes that means you're managing a larger, I don't really like the architect role, personally. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work for mm-hmm. me. I'd rather be in charge, and I'd rather be responsible. Like, I think that I've always wanted to have the responsibility for the services that I'm trying to tell what to do. Cause otherwise mm-hmm. it's very easy to like get astronaut architecty. not saying that everybody does that, but like, it's very easy. Like if your butt's not on the line, if people aren't, you know, if customers aren't yelling at you when things fail, it's very easy to make a lot of like, you should do X without really understanding what it's like. Yeah. So, and you, so. you mentioned right at the beginning, corporate vice president. How many of those are there? I don't know. More than a few <laughs> enough to fill a reasonably large room. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, hundreds, I would say. At Microsoft, yeah. a couple hundred. Yeah. Something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And uh, that spans engineering. And I mean, obviously, it spans sure. Xbox and Word and Office and, you know, and then also into the field and like sales field and all of that. Cool. It's been fun. It's been a yeah. lot of learning. A lot of learning. How long have you been there? Be a little over, it's seven years basically right now. Wow. So a long time. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of remarkable. You look back, you're like, well, all right. The hint is slowly creeping up on a decade, which yeah, is yeah, so yeah. rare now. I it's hard to keep up with my friends that are, especially the young, the younger, younger people. 
The ones yeah, without yeah, gray beards yeah. that they're yeah. just hopping around so much. It's it is the longest manager I've ever had. I've had the same manager mm. for those seven years, mm. and like it is the longest I've had the same manager. So mm. That's kind of cool. Yeah, especially if you like them. <laughs> yeah, and it works out. I mean, it, it, it's it's good, and but like just that level of consistency. In fact, my reporting chain in general, all the way up to Satya, hasn't changed. Oh wow, so mm. that's kind of cool. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I think I, I learned 20 years ago, probably that earlier in my career, that it was, most of my happiness at a job was related to my boss, not actually what I was doing. And that's why I would try to pick my boss more than pick the position. And then, of course, you know, yeah, bosses don't always stay. So, no, you know, I had one where six months later they were gone. So it was always t- it's always hard to find a good boss and then uh, stick with them. So I feel like maybe talking about so a recent set show we had, let me set this up a little bit, is talking about all the ways to run containers in the cloud, essentially. Mostly on, we were talking about AWS and that that one, but I was very curious today because I started reviewing all the ways I could run containers in Azure because I hadn't checked in a while. And it seems like, you know, we keep coming up. I, I just, I'm just going to put that out there. It feels like the containers have won the cloud because we now have, <laughs> it seems like more ways to run containers on the cloud than any other type of workload, if you consider a container a single kind of workload. And in fact, I pulled up, just for reference, this wonderful little Azure help page that is basically saying, this is all of our container services. Would Let me help you. It's almost like Clippy asking me, hey, I see you want to run containers. Here's all the ways you can run containers on Azure. And I think a lot of us, especially those that are learning Kubernetes, we, we learn about Kubernetes on the cloud, so AKS. But yeah, I like to advocate for it. So this is sort of setting up the conversation for maybe some of the others, some of your favorites or some of the ones you like to talk about. I like to talk about other ways that we can abstract. And so I think a lot of for years now, we've all been talking about what's the next abstraction on top of Kubernetes. And so I pretend to recommend for people checking out Azure container apps first, in case they maybe don't need to go to the level of complexity of Kubernetes and only get into Kubernetes if they're, if they think that they're going to need, you know, all of that level of complexity. How do you, if someone's coming to you and they don't necessarily have this pre-assumption of I need Kubernetes, do you help to, how do you guide them through the decisions on where they run their containers? Yeah, actually, we just at Microsoft Build, the conference this past month, we, you know, we gave a talk and we are actually, I would say, we're trying to focus in a little bit. We're trying to, this page is going to get updated soon and it's going to focus in a little bit more on Azure container apps and the Azure Kubernetes service. as two ways that we would, recommend people to start thinking about running containers. OpenShift is obviously a great solution for people who are in the Red Hat ecosystem and interested in that as well. Uh, and yeah, I think container apps is definitely that sort of platform as a service. You know, I've got one or two containers. I want to spin them up quickly. I don't necessarily want to get, you know, have it get in my way. I think that what we find is that there's a lot of value in the cloud native ecosystem, in the open source ecosystem. And a lot of that value is built on top of the Kubernetes API. Right? And I think this is a challenge that we're trying to figure out how we sort our way through, right? Because it's like, I want the simplified experience for my own development, but I kind of need the complex experience so that a monitoring system or a database that I want to run can land in the raw Kubernetes cluster. And so I think what we're trying to figure out over time is, how do we actually deliver both of those things in the same place? Right? Azure Container Apps is actually built on top of AKS. It's built on top of the Azure Kubernetes service. Right now, that's not necessarily exposed to the end user. 
But I think over time, what you're going to see is you're going to start exposing it. So you can sort of say, well, for my app, I'll have a simplified development model, but I'll be able to kind of break glass down to the Kubernetes APIs when I need to. That's kind of the North Star that we're driving towards. And I think that the traditional problem with platform as a service has been that cliff. Like I've always said, you know, you want the experience of leaving a pass to be kind of like firing the gardener as opposed to jumping out of an airplane, (laughs) right? Like you, you fire the gardener. Well, what happens? Well, the next week, the grass gets a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And eventually you figure out how to use the mower right? Like you jump out of a plane, like you got very little choice, but to figure out how to fly on the way down. Right. right? And I think that's been the challenge is that like that sort of gradual descent into complexity versus the like easy hard is, has been the traditional challenge with past platforms. And is actually, I think why we continue to see so many people come into Kubernetes because no one's done a great job so far of like building that bridge that building that sort of continuous connection between an easy to use experience on the one hand and this general purpose infrastructure on the other. That's actually a really great topic because I'm also a consultant and I end up helping a lot of people that are coming out of my courses and they're getting started on the, you know, the Kubernetes and Docker train. Of course, I'm seeing more and more of people that are there. They've been doing containers a while, but now they're finally adopting Kubernetes or maybe they were adopting Kubernetes for maybe just to test stuff or, you know, low risk environments yeah, and now yeah. they're ready to go full in. And I, I agree with you completely on the, you know, we think of the Heroku style sort of, I don't need SSH for anything here. <laughs> and I certainly yeah, yeah, don't yeah. need any low level CLI tools to manage it unless I want to do something like Terraform. And then there's, oh, well, suddenly there's one thing. There's like that first thing that they can't do on that easy to use plug and play, if we're going to take it back a notch, plug and play yeah. platform. And then suddenly it's the depths of now I need to know Kubernetes API, I need to know Kubernetes tooling, I need to write Helm charts, I need to blah, blah, blah. And it just, the it all rolls down really quickly for them as terms of, well, this is this is a much bigger ask than my previous experience. And yeah, yeah I'd love to, That's a that's got to be sort of a fascinating, or a hard problem, but a fascinating one once you are able to crack some of that nut, because that is, a, that is like what everyone I think is challenged with. I agree, yeah. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing where if you'd asked me when we started, like, when would we have solved it? I would have said, like, oh, I don't know, a couple of years, we'll get there, <laughs> Yeah, right? So when we're approaching 10 years and we're still like, man, like, there's this problem out here. And we're start of, sort of starting to see, I think people are starting to sort of say platform engineering. Like, that's kind of be turning into a term that I think people are starting to talk about in terms of, like, linking up, well, GitHub Actions to, you know, a predefined Helm chart or a predefined YAML for deployment. Like, you can start to cobble together something that looks a little bit like Heroku, but has the flexibility of Kubernetes underneath it. But it's certainly not codified and it's certainly not like off the shelf. You know, it's still, oh, I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and I'll plug this in here. And, you know, and it's interesting to try and figure out why, like why, right? And the best thing that I can come up with and that I've thought about over time is that the high level pass thing demos really, really well. Right? Yeah. So it's super easy to sell it yeah. because you're like, look, in five minutes, I have a working at scale, auto scaled application because none of the stuff that you talk about where you like hit that one thing comes up in demo. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and so it's really easy to sell. And it's not until much long- later that you realize, oh, crap, like we should have built it in a way that was more modular and more decomposable. And the other approach is to build up from the bottom and to like build all these modular composable pieces. But for a while, that just looks like more complexity. 
because people are like, why are you trying to tell me about this like singleton service idea and this other idea? Because you have to necessarily like build the, you're at the low level, you build the next level up, you build the next level up. Eventually you get to that pretty, like it demos great world with modular composition. But the first couple steps don't really feel like progress. And so it's kind of hard to get people interested and excited and adopting and all of that stuff. And we made some scratches at it, right? I mean, I think the Dapper project that we've worked on for a while and continues to gain traction is probably one of the best steps along this continuum where you can say like, okay, like let's make something like subscribing to a Kafka queue something that a developer really doesn't have to think very much about. Let's try and give them that sort of like functions as a service, event-driven webhook style programming model, but in a way that they can graft it onto maybe a legacy J2EE application or a legacy ASP.NET application. And I think that's really powerful, that kind of incremental adoption. So I think we're starting to see those pieces, but it's like building an operating system. And I guess that's the only other thing that I would say to give us a little bit of grace is that, you know, let's say that operating systems started to exist in the mid-1960s. That's an ish, but mid-1960s. The modern operating system, I don't know when you want to place the date, but somewhere, I, I mean, I would say somewhere between later versions of Mac OS and Windows 95. I'd probably put it at Windows 95, right? So that's 1995, right? So 65 to 95, that's 30 years to develop the modern operating system, right? So we're 10 years into containers. Maybe we need a little bit more time also. Yeah. Right. I mean, I still have people starting the Docker and Kubernetes courses that I sell every day. <laughs> so it's, I mean, yes, there's a lot of people in university, but I still think that, especially those of us that have been in enterprise tech and knowing that tech cycle is so much longer than what the rest of the industry... If you're on the tip of the spear, if you're working at a small team and you're able to adopt... If you're able to adopt Docker before 2023, you know, 20, or maybe even 2020, you were relatively leading edge or you were on the other side of the bell curve. And now we're like past that and we're on the, we're on the laggards, I guess you could say at this point. But there's a lot of laggards and there's a lot... I think that's something that is sort of evident on this show because we get people coming in, they're asking the same questions that we were asking. We were talking about seven or eight years ago. I remember specifically like DockerCon 2019, I was talking with the event managers at the time and uh, that, that created the DockerCon. And they were we were talking about workshops and Docker 101s, right? Like, do we need a Docker 101? Do we need a container 101? And for those of us that are in, edu I guess I could say I'm in education now. Those of us that were teaching were like, yeah, you're always going to have to have that. Like, of course, like there's always going to need to be a Kubernetes 101. It's not like everyone in, is coming out of university and automatically has all these skills. Like we need, we definitely need the 101s, but there's still a significant portion of those people that, I mean, even at KubeCon, right? We see half the hands raised or people that's the first time at KubeCon. It, it's, there's no stopping the onslaught of people that are doing, maybe they're even doing container light. Maybe that's the term we use, container light. And it's, Kubernetes is that next thing for them. And it's interesting that, I guess what you're really talking about is that we talk about abstractions a lot and that Kubernetes, we're looking at all these other abstraction options now on top of Kubernetes. And is it what you're talking about, like these ideas that you're going to have to create in order to make the Kubernetes API maybe optional as is that you're going to have to create new things on top of that. And now we got to learn the new things first. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. And that the new things are going to kind of, I think that for a little bit, the new things add complexity. Yeah. Right? Unless you jump to the absolute top and you're like, 
web app is the new concept, right? But then you're building yeah. paths, right? Right. But if you start saying like, oh, okay, like we're going to introduce 15 distributed system concepts on top, you know, as, as like the next level up from Kubernetes so that instead of you saying like, hey, I've got a deployment, you say something like, hey, I've got a sharded application, right? Which has yeah. sharding in there. You're like, oh, like I could understand 10 replicas. Now you have to explain to me what sharding is. Yeah. Right. So like, it simplifies things because at some point you're going to need the sharding and the fact that you can use it as a concept without implementing it is a good thing. But it also kind of, the jump in is still, is a little bit more complicated because it presumes you're designing a system, not just like, hey, you're running some stuff. Yeah. And then also it's just hard to figure out like, what is the right, what are the right models? You know, I, I cast my mind back I don't know what you remember, but like there was a period of time when the DOS computer that I ran, the applications had the code compiled into it to run the mouse, right? Like it was like, oh, there's a serial port and the mouse has been plugged into the serial port. And when I launch, you know, Microsoft Word or when I launch whatever it is, like that app is actually talking to the mouse. There's no operating perfect 5.1. I have this in my brain like from mid 90s. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no like, and you had to like, is my app compatible with my mouse? Right. Right. And at some point, somebody had to sit down and be like, actually, no, we're going to have in the operating system, this concept of a mouse, and this is the model and all the mice will fit into the model and all the apps will talk to the model. And now we've abstracted the mouse away. And similarly with printers and network drivers and all the stuff, right? Somebody has to sit down and build those things and design them. And convince everybody to adopt them. And that's hard. And and one of the better analogies I've heard recently about that exact concept was something that actually you've talked about on another presentation about declarative computing and how you flying a plane when you were a kid versus your child flying a drone with an iPad and how it's just, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's easier. Yeah, it's easier. And it's also getting some intelligence into the loop, right? So like, yeah. And but yeah, I think with the mouse is a great example, too, where you don't have to, you, you just get events, right? Like, you no longer have mm-hmm. to think like, keep checking with the mouse, keep checking. No, you just sort of say like, okay, when the mouse moves, you can even choose what kind of events do I want a double click event Do I have like, even something like double clicking, actually, if you think about it is hard. Like conceptually, mm-hmm. as an app developer, you think, oh, yeah, I want to respond if somebody double clicks. But like, if you think about it in terms of actually pressing the button, how, what defines a double click, right? Like how fast, how slow, like what, when is it two clicks? When is it, like someone had to go along and solve all that stuff. And then that empowers a bunch of developers to just use the concept. And I think that's kind of the stuff we're going through, which is what are the concepts we need? How do we define those concepts? And then how do we expose them in a way that, that developers know how to put them together into useful things? But it's taken way longer than I would have thought. And we don't have, and I guess I would, the other thing that I find interesting, and I don't know what this says, I don't see us pursuing it with a lot of urgency, like as a community, right? I guess is what I would say. We spend a lot of time being like, oh my God, it's so complicated. (laughs) And like, you know, there's this Simpsons at one point where like, I think it's Flanders's dad is like, we've tried nothing and we're out of ideas. <laughs> and it, I kind of feel that way sometimes when I look at the community where I'm like, okay, like you're saying a lot about how complicated this thing is. And yet I don't see us coalescing. And I guess you need someone to rally and drive the flag and stuff like that. And of course it's solid six years between probably co- container ideas being in Linux and Docker popularizing those ideas. And, and I think without 
frankly, without Docker, I don't know that it would have happened. It's not like it was set to happen. I think there is a lot of that coalescing and like driving the flag, but yeah, I don't know. Hard. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned a couple of things. You mentioned Dapper. I just want to bring that up real quick for people. Maybe not everybody's familiar with that. My understanding is you can actually use Dapper specifically on some of the Azure services, right? You want to describe that real quick for those that don't know? Yeah, I mean, so actually Dapper is available on inside of AKS. It's available inside of Azure Container Apps just automatically if you want to turn it on. But it's worth pointing out that it really is not an Azure thing. It has a bunch of, we, we have this idea of a binding concept and a binding. So you'd say like a concept is PubSub and a binding is an implementation for a specific PubSub system. And so, you know, you as a developer can develop to the PubSub API and it will work with SQS. It will work with Kafka. It will work with event hubs. It will work with, you know, other PubSub systems that are out there. And so, you know, while we, I think we do a good job of integrating it into Azure, you want to run it on AWS, on EKS and connect to SQS or connect to DynamoDB or any number of other services on AWS, like it will work great. And we have customers who are doing exactly that. And in fact, using it as a portable API, it's in some cases to like build applications that are truly cloud portable, even across different storage systems. Yeah. I mean, I remember that this is a little bit of, sometimes we're talking about application deployment abstractions. Sometimes we're talking about maybe like cluster management abstractions. I feel like sometimes you can have something that does all or some different ideas of that are separated. And I remember that years ago, there was this, I don't even remember who was running this Google Sheet, but it was a Google Sheet of like the 100 ways you can deploy apps on Kubernetes without writing Kubernetes YAML. I think it was specifically around application deployment. So maybe it didn't solve the entire problem of maybe abstracting out that thing. And for years, I was pounding the drum at, toward Docker because as Docker captains, I get a little bit of insider access. So I try to influence things the way I see them. And I wanted them to get composed. There was a couple experiments on getting composed as a deployment tool for Kubernetes. Never quite happened. There was a couple of iterations of, on different ideas and different things that are all now archived and don't exist anymore. And I remember there was a conversation at some point about how hard it was to take that simple idea of a YAML file and be able to encompass even 50% of what you would need to do on a Kubernetes platform. And that it would essentially just, the compose the YAML format would end up being the Kubernetes YAML format, you know, the manifest format. And so it was, I sort of accepted defeat that that wasn't going to be the thing, but it wasn't going to be the one of the 100 on the list, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I've seen recently, I mean, Dapper definitely is a thing. I've seen Acorn from Darren Shepard and the, I don't know anything about it, but HashiCorp has something, lots yeah. of people have, yeah. everybody keeps trying. Yeah. It's the same problem, right? I mean, we have this thing called, we have a system called Draft that we worked, a project called Draft that we worked on that does the same kind of like bootstrappy kind of stuff. Everybody yeah. has their own take on it. It's the same issue, right? Which is how you do the really easy to use thing, but then how do you let somebody gradually see the complexity? Because people yeah. can't live in the easy to use thing for like if people live in the easy to use thing for forever, it's Heroku or it's yeah. whatever your favorite PaaS is. Right? right. And we already had that discussion. Right. So like, right. So, again, yeah. again, like you have to figure out, like, how do you gradually let the complexity in? Same uh, defaults. How do you make sure that the defaults are there that you don't have to see? That's I mean, yeah, Kubernetes technically does that. Like if, you know, if we'd have done a really hard mode, right, the, the manifest would have had to been explicitly defined for every value. And boy, can you yeah, imagine yeah, yeah. that? 
that world. So, I, I mean, I feel like it's to a certain extent, I came from the sysadmin background. So a lot of this stuff, when we talk about deployment complexity, you know, pipelines and systems management, I'm just thinking, look, I don't know why we're all unhappy because it's still better than it's ever been. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, it's interesting that you're talking about the will, like the will to solve this problem doesn't, doesn't, maybe it's almost like we needed a break from the attempts and maybe, you know, who knows, maybe someone out there listening maybe can start the will in the company and find the funding and do all those things in order to iterate over an idea that solves 80, the 80, 20 rule sort of for Kubernetes. Yeah. It's an interesting problem. Or or be happy solving certain problems, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think there's some things like you look at like monitoring and I think monitoring is still hard in terms of defining the right things, but like in terms of like the Prometheus scrape format, yeah. And so like, it's just done. Like nobody's going and messing with like that mm-hmm. ship has sailed, right? For that specific vertical area, I think. And maybe that's just what we need to do is build up enough of these like single focused things that you can build a system out of them. But then somebody still has to kind of stitch them together. Yeah. The thing I'm really looking from your, for from your audience, I think, is the, is the lamp stack moment, right? Like we still talk about it. Yeah, you know what is the acronym and what is the pieces right? Because I think the thing the great the thing that was great about Lamp is that it was kind of like it was a philosophy, but it's also kind of loose, mm-hmm. right? So people could be like, "Oh, the M is my SQL," but actually, it's going to be Postgres, or actually, it's going to be SQL Server. But you kind of still could squint at it and know what how you're supposed to put things together. Yeah, you know, and or they'd be like, eh, "It's not really going to be PHP; it's going to be ASP.NET." But you know, we can squint at it. And I feel like we don't have that for Kubernetes, right? Like there isn't that, there isn't that like the opinionated stack. Right. Yeah. So, well, we definitely have opinionated stacks, but it's certainly not a consensus on which one. Right. And it's not a loose consensus. It's not a loose consensus. Cause I think the thing great, I mean, I feel like the great thing about LAMP was that it was like, it was a loose consensus. Like nobody was going to be like shouting you down in a DevOps meeting because you were using something that wasn't PHP. Yeah. And you're right. Like it was composable to a certain extent that you could implement you know, the other, the LAM and skip the P, put in, you know, gosh, back then it might have even been a classic ASP. Do you remember that? Yeah, classic ASP, Cold Fusion. You remember Cold oh, Fusion? Man. Yeah. <laughs> I actually spoke at a Cold Fusion conference like four years ago. Like it's still a thing. It's not called Cold Fusion anymore, but yeah, it's hilarious how things, in, you know, typically in tech, we, they just don't die. They go, they stop being talked about, but they still, they're still there. We actually had a question. I want to change the subject real quick. Well, not necessarily change it. I wanted to ask you, I mean, we, we can't have a show in 2023 without talking about AI or even mentioning the word, but we had a similar, a little bit of a question around AI, but I'm going to ask it a different way. Do you see, when we're talking about this infrastructure deployment and all these other, do you think that there's an opportunity there or do you see anyone working on a way for AI to maybe reduce that complexity by maybe making some of the decisions for us? Do you see anything out there that you could predict? I mean... Predicting is always a dangerous sport, but we did actually have some, one of the folks on my team built this cube control AI plugin. So you can actually now say cube control AI, deploy me in Nginx and it will just do it. So I think that's interesting. It's experimental. I mean, that's all experiments that rather than anything else, but I think there's some interesting things there. The places that I'm actually more interested in looking at AI actually has to do with like summarizing complexity. So I think the novel generative stuff kind of captured everybody's imagination. And I think tools like GitHub Copilot actually are really fantastic at some of this stuff. But I think that the other really exciting area is imagine you're woken up in the middle of the night, you're coming into your cluster, and you could get a one paragraph summary of what's going on in your cluster. 
right? I think that kind of like, let me, like the kind of, let me snap me up to date, get me up to date. You know, we see this in teams too, where teams has features where, you know, you can join a meeting 30 minutes late and it will just like give you the summary of what everybody's talked about for the previous 30, 30 minutes. Um, yeah. And I think that's the area that I'm particularly excited about because I think that's the harder part of it. You know, I mean, the learning curve is there, but like once you get over the learning curve, it's not that bad. Whereas like the summarization of complexity is a, it's just like an ongoing perma problem. Yeah. I think, I mean, when I think of like the, what AI can do for this kind of area, anytime I use chat GPT to say, create a manifest for Kubernetes to build, I don't know, some Nginx thing. The first answer is wrong. I mean, it makes up stuff that just doesn't exist or it just doesn't work. And so it requires that conversation to go back and forth to, to like narrow it down and like get it just right. And maybe we don't have to have that conversation as a human, but you know, maybe it's the policies. I think in another talk, I saw you talk about guardrails and some of the rules that I think you guys are defining or other people are yeah. defining. And maybe that's that conversation that the AI has with the policies and then comes up with that right, I don't know, something, yeah. something along that route. Yeah, I think, I think having, I think that notion of like giving the constraints and asking AI, you know, like, give me an Nginx configuration. Okay, is that Nginx mm -hmm. configuration compliant with my security policies? Or, you know, something like that. I think those are pretty effective ways to, to do it. I think it's always going to be that mix of like the, I guess, open AI is calling them skills, I think, and other people have called them other things, but that way of like plugging in stuff to the system so that it knows like, oh, mm -hmm. I can do this thing over here. I don't have to sort of a priori create it from the things that I've learned. I can just harness, you know, that particular mm -hmm. skill. So yeah, it'll mm -hmm. be interesting to see. I think, I mean, the other place, this is not like LLM stuff, but we've also, we continue in, in all of my live site services to use, we're heavy users of things like anomaly detection and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff that can predict differences in low volume metrics, right? Like I think one of the things we've seen as we've continued to see the broad adoption of Kubernetes is that the environments get more and more complicated and more and more different from one another. And of course, you know, we're, we de deliver for a lot of different enterprises and they have very different, let's say network security requirements and being able to detect like, oh, actually that code change breaks everybody who uses Palo Alto filtering devices or whatever it happens to be, which might be 2% of our you know, cluster population, but if every single one of them breaks, that's an anomaly, right? That kind of stuff for noise reduction for our on calls is has been huge. I'm going to ask this question. This is, I thought this was an interesting one as a slight subject change here. Always bringing the good questions. There's some kind of DevOps fatigue with devs nowadays. When I look around the internet, how could DevOps and Kubernetes community work against that or improve the feeling of fatigue? I mean, it, it maybe coincides with the whole, you know, some of the platform engineering is marketed as the end of DevOps, which is really, then you actually listen to it and then you're like, yeah, they're not saying that. They're just trying to get a headline. They're actually very pro DevOps. That's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that I talked a lot about, and you can see this in a variety of different talks that I've given, is this notion of separation of concerns as being the true goal of DevOps. And I'm not sure that anybody ever really implemented it. Like, I think people said DevOps means dev's own operation. And it's, well, did that actually mean that the devs should be responsible for upgrading the OS? Like, probably yeah. not, right? And I think that we just didn't have the tools in some sense to separate things out enough so that you could say, because I don't think any developer has fatigue for 
ensuring that the code that they wrote is reliable. Or at least if they do, then they shouldn't be in the services business, right? Like, (laughs) I think the fatigue comes from doing either the same thing over and over again. So a lack of automation, which is a culture thing, ultimately, you know, you have to make sure that you're driving that culture of automation or from the fact that you're like debugging stuff that isn't really your fault. Right. Like you're like, I'm down in this service mesh. I don't want to understand the details of how IP tables works. I just want my damn application to talk to my other application. Right. And I think that's because, you know, we haven't done a great job of establishing ownership at the various different layers and saying like, okay, well, you're the DevOps for your app, but somebody else will be the DevOps for the service mesh. And that service mesh is part of the platform. It's part of the, like, by the way, to the platform engineering people, just because you're the platform engineering team doesn't mean you get to get out of the on-call. Right. Like, <laughs> like that's also really important. And I think something yeah. that people also don't always like you are delivering a service. You're just delivering a service for other developers. Um, and I think if you do that and you do that in the right ways, then like you get over some of this fatigue. But also, I mean, I do think that we have to be honest with everybody. And I think this is what probably also one of the challenges that we've pushed. I've pushed really hard in my own org. You got to be really honest with product managers that you're going to spend a lot of your time doing like live site stuff. You're going to spend a ton of your engineering cycles on what smells like operations. Mm -hmm. It's just the, that's just the reality of services, right? Yeah. And I think oftentimes we do a bad job reserving enough capacity to do that, right? We're like, no, no, no. Well, you're like, it's going to, like, we can squeeze it in. I'm on call this week, but I can still get that feature done. Mm. And like, that's just not reality, right? And so I think that's also where the burnout comes from is that we're not, we as whether it's product leaders or organization leaders or business leaders or whoever it is, we're not, we have to be really, really explicit about saying like, we actually need to reserve a ton of capacity just for keeping these things running. Yeah. Yeah. There was that, maybe there was that moment where, and this is very team specific, but that moment where the manager saw that we were technically one part of DevOps, we were a little bit successful in giving the devs the ability to do some ops, which was the part of the failure of 30 years ago was that the devs couldn't, like, right. it was a wall. It was a virtual wall or maybe the physical wall of the data center. The devs couldn't even get in there to talk to the operators because they didn't have their, they didn't have the access to the data center. And we gave them those tools and then maybe someone took it too far and then fired the ops person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, to a certain extent, it's like, I feel like we're successful, but maybe we dial that back a little bit. I mean, of course, be, being the ops m- person, I'm always very pro ops and always trying to encourage teams that to not take it for granted and to not try to just bundle it on as a part-time job to the rest of the devs and saddle them with that. But you're right that there's also there, there's that fatigue. I've, I've never met a consultant client. Of course, this is my worldview because people come to me for help and they don't come to me for help and they don't need the help. So I've never met a client that couldn't optimize their systems. Like they didn't, like they had, they had fully automated deployments. They had fully automated on-call processes that automatically evaluated clusters and helped you troubleshoot and gave you quick answers and had a, a full diary of all the documentation and the change and the exact level of changes across all repos because they're doing GitOps everywhere. Like no one's really ever d- done that that hires me. So whenever I hear that, and I don't hear that a lot, but I do sense it a lot of times with teams that have developers. So for Unsecured there, the great question, I agree with you. I see that sometimes, but it's usually those teams that are driving that you know, 15-year-old monolith Rails app that haven't adapted to anything and they're still provisioning manual machines in the cloud for all things. They're still managing everything themselves. They don't have automation. They haven't changed their ways in 
five to 10 years. And I think that that's probably like Brendan's saying, I feel like that's more of the symptom of, of the culture change problem that you maybe need to have. So yeah, let's ask the internet that, right? If we've heard it on the internet, let's go ask the internet if that's the real case. Yeah. Regarding being on call, are you, do you ever still take the pager to be on call or, or what kind of problem needs to happen for you to get a call? Yeah, no, we do have a, we call it the executive incident manager on call. And, you know, we're on call to, sometimes we have times when teams need approval to do a faster push than usual, right? So we have mm -hmm. a safe deployment policy mm -hmm. where we say like, you have to have a big time in the region and then move on to the next region and low traffic and high, you know, a mix of these different regions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, the team is like, look, it's a two line change. We're highly confident <laughs> and it's having lots of impact. Right. Because obviously, you know, every dev believes that their change is going to work perfectly. Someone needs to check the box to say, yeah, I approve that. Mm -hmm. um, and so you'll get mm -hmm. like, sometimes that happens. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's around customer engagement around an issue, right? They want mm -hmm. someone who either had, I mean, quite honestly, sometimes they're just looking for somebody with a title and, or sometimes they're just looking for someone who's had a little bit of experience working, you know, talking with a customer and explaining it at the right level. I think sometimes the on-call engineer needs to be fixing the problem, but may not be the right person to explain it to a customer right. who maybe doesn't understand all the different layers in the stack. It's usually that kind of yeah. stuff. We're fortunate that we generally do 12 by seven. Like in Azure in general, we push really hard to do 12 by seven, not everywhere, but we're getting increasingly good at having people around the world so that we can do follow the sun, which makes a huge difference sort of in people's lives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I would have, if you've asked me to answer that, I would have assumed, no, he's not on call. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's actually that's actually really cool. I'm impressed with that. That's neat. That yeah. uh, I, you reminding me that I should go check when I'm going to be on call <laughs> next and make sure it's not during a vacation. I caught Christmas yeah. week, by the way. For the last two years, I've caught Christmas week. Christmas to New Year's. <laughs> oh, yeah. Someone likes you. That's why. No, it's actually good, though, because actually, like, nobody's working, so nobody's pushing code, so stuff breaks. Oh, yeah. Off. Oh, that's an interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's a more, especially around the, well, I guess maybe Black Friday is more of the same. People freak out more. I mean, like people definitely freak out more when bad stuff happens, but like, because like actually Christmas Day is really huge for people like Xbox. Mm -hmm. uh, as people like unbox the Xbox and like boot it yeah. for the first time and as play a, the new game or whatever it is, right? Yeah. yeah. That's so an, that's an like, excellent point. That's a pretty uh, critical I, day for Xbox. I have Diablo 4 sitting over here on Xbox that's waiting for me to play later today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I've been all over uh, Tears of the Kingdom, actually, which is not, oh, I'm nice. not on, I'm not on brand, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Haven't played that one yet. Yeah. I'm going to switch subjects real quick. would love to hear your thoughts on server-side WASM. So this was actually one of our topics as it's increasingly, I mean, it's got its own day now at KubeCon where we've got WASM WASI Day or whatever the WebAssembly Day, whatever the version of those acronyms we want to use. We had a show so that, to set everybody up. We've had shows on this in the past. There's probably stuff that's happened in this year that I'm not aware of. But let me set you up real quick, Brendan. The WebAssembly is not new. It's been around for years. It was in the browser. And then at some point, someone thought, well, what if we could run this outside the browser, right? And... I've explained it several times on the show before. So those of you that are new, there's this WASI WebAssembly systems interface, which helps us run WebAssembly apps without a browser on a machine. And those of us in cloud native decided to say, well, that if that means we can, if we can do that, then let's see if we can run it in a container. And fast forward to today, now you have, I mean, now you have 
ways to run WebAssembly on Kubernetes in Azure, which I believe you were the first cloud to do it, right? You were definitely the first. And yeah. I think still the only, I think we might still be the only, but I'm not positive about that. But I mean, you can do it in other clouds, but I'm not sure it's like a supported, documented part of right. what you're yeah, and it says it sounds like you'd probably have to roll. I mean, this is where when we get into the weeds of this, we're talking about a different runtime that has to be installed on the servers. So that would mean that if you're doing it on a different cloud, you definitely have to handhold yeah. your deployments or, and, or or take your WebAssembly and package it as a container and then just run the container. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheating, cheating, I call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, word, do you have like a state of Wazi Wasm right now? Do you have like any updates that have happened this year on Azure? Or yeah. Otherwise? I mean, I think the big thing that the big thing that I've been involved in this year, this spring, has been the development of the HTTP spec for Wasi, mm. which allows you to both make outgoing HTTP connections and also do some HTTP serving. And I actually had the opportunity to implement that as well for Wasm Time, which is the Bytecode Alliance's one of the Bytecode Alliance's runtimes for Wasm, and that's actually shipping now in the most recent release. So that's kind of cool because, like, I started playing around. You know, we've been doing a bunch of this work and. One of the things that I think has come up a lot is, well, isn't this just the JVM again? Or isn't this just the CLR? You know, like, isn't this just whatever your favorite virtual machine, you know, language agnostic virtual machine is, right? And I think there's some important differences, but also I think it's an important, it's an important critique, right? So I think the important difference is, you know, an opt-in security model where by default you can't do anything and then people add capabilities in. So like that's something that's different. Then also the fact that it was sort of language agnostic from the beginning is also a little bit different. But at the same time, I think that like if we just re-implement POSIX APIs inside of a virtual machine, I'm not sure we're really gaining the most bang for the buck. You know, and this is an ongoing debate, I would say. I'm not I don't really speak for the WebAssembly community. But my feeling is like most people don't care about things like sockets. They want to make web calls. I was actually just talking to some networking people a while ago. And I was like, look, just like nobody cares about sockets anymore because 99% of what everybody does is some sort of HTTP RESTful call or it's a gRPC call over HTTP web sockets, right? And so I think that the opportunity the WebAssembly presents that's interesting is an opportunity to maybe redefine what the system interface is. And so in general, we've been working on kind of figuring out like what is the kernel binary interface for cloud-based workloads. And like, I, I, we had this, again, at Microsoft Build, we had a discussion of like the future of programming languages. And I said, and I think maybe a little bit to, to provoke a conversation, but I actually kind of mean it, like, why do we care about files? Like, why does anybody care about files anymore? Because I would argue that like, actually really nobody should care about files. <laughs> like, it's just not a concept that anybody should really care about. It's just almost um, like having the ability gives us bad habits. It's like, yeah, because I can access the and, file system. I'm going to write files. <laughs> yeah. And, and this isn't like the 12 factor, like, because I mean, I think some of this mm -hmm. stuff came out in the 12 factor manifesto, but because I'm not saying like, I don't necessarily want state, state, local state is good, right? There's reasonable, valuable stuff you can do with local state, but at a programming perspective, should I really be interacting with it as a stream of bytes? It just kind of doesn't make sense. And I think that's one of the opportunities that WebAssembly presents is to say, like, actually, maybe we can develop a programming model that is a little bit more oriented around the kinds of ways that people are 
programming today, right? I think if you look at Linux or you look at any operating system, really, the concepts that the operating system exposes, they're ancient concepts. They're concepts from 30 years ago. And they're concepts that were not, they were built for single machines, right? Like the person who developed the idea of POSIX was really not thinking about distributed systems, right? Network, yes, sort of-ish, but not distributed systems and not certainly not like event-based systems, right? So like why, if you think about making a call, like if you think about receiving an event from a mouse, why is it so different, the programming model of receiving an event from a mouse than receiving an event from a Kafka queue? Right. And people try and sort of like smush it together with a bunch of really thick client libraries and things like that. But like at some level, those things are operating system. Like receiving an event from a pub sub mechanism, a cloud pub sub mechanism, that's an operating system level concept at this point, in my opinion. But we don't expose it that way right now. Similarly, like with reliable key value store, right? Like reliable key value store should just be an operating system level concept. Hmm. And whether it's how that happens, who cares? Right. Like mostly I don't care. I like it. I like, I mean, I think that's the containers. One of the successes or one of the things, reasons that I consider sort of, you know, why did containers, why did Docker just take off? And there's lots of reasons we can talk about that different show. But one of the things that it did that so many other paradigms in tech didn't do was it brought everyone with it. Like you can take an 80s app and you can put it in a container and it will function. I mean, maybe it's not even network aware because it sold as pre TCP IP and it didn't really yeah, yeah, you know, you can still run that in a container as long as Linux can can run it. It can yeah, run, yeah. and that to me, I mean, watching the just the huge amount of monoliths coming into containers, and what it meant to me a lot of times was it brought all the bad habits with it. And so, yeah. you know, we always talk about, I mean, early days containers when everybody was worried about will my app work in containers. You know, I think it was like PayPal that did seven hundred apps, or moved seven hundred apps into containers without a single line of code change. And yeah, these yeah. are things are all true, and I'm so glad you mentioned twelve factor because these are these things were all true if you followed a lot of the twelve factor principles of you don't hard code things in your code, you, you abstract your environment away from your application code itself, and so. But containers allowed us to continue that. You know, you could hard code file writing and reading. You could do all this stuff with bad behavior. You could bind mount the entire system in if you really wanted to. You could run it yeah, as privileged as a root level application. You could, I have clients that their app, their container apps control system D on the bare metal OS. I mean, there's just so many, there's nothing you can't do really. And I love the idea that, well, you know, maybe at its worst case, maybe the file system abstractions of WASI or it's an add-on, it's a plugin or something. Like maybe it's not out of the box by default, but we almost make it harder for people. But at the same time, we all want more web, I mean, those of us, I think that are on the, WebAssembly fan, fanboys, whatever, fan club, sure. we, we want people to use it. And the more barriers we make to, to using yeah. it, it, so it's a double-edged sword. It's like, well, we, I want more people to try this out. My goal for once I learned what really WASI was going to do for WebAssembly, my goal was like, I want to be able to set up a Kubernetes cluster. And when I do, it automatically installs the runtime for WebAssembly. And let's all hope that it's a future where they're all mostly compatible, or I at least can help decide which one I'm running at which time. Like I can see a world where we maybe have three or four different ones on your cluster, uh, yeah. but I was wanting to be able to have nodes where you can run Linux containers and WebAssembly containers side by side. You can, you know, maybe someday they're actually two different containers in the same pod. Who knows how that's going to work? Yeah. Cause, but it gets yeah, yeah. really, it, I'm just imagining a future where you, the developer decide you want to use WebAssembly as your compiled runtime. 
I, as a system operator, don't even have to care anymore. And you don't have to care because we still have that container abstraction. And we still yeah. can just say, you're just shipping me a container. Uh, my container, you could, we all actually, now I think about it, we all, with Kubernetes, we just assume the platform is Linux slash AM, let's say AMD right now, AMD 64. We assume that for the longest time. And Getting then, better. But yeah. Yeah. And then we started to realize, oh, we need to now support Linux slash ARM, right? Like, because yeah. now M1s and Gravitons and all these different things. And that's, and I love that that's exposing people to the multi-platform idea because I feel like that's the predecessor to Wazzywazm. Like that the, we're now going to add a third platform to our clusters and we're going to be able to run this third type of container that as long as the sysadmin or the cloud has set it up correctly, it just works. Yeah. Do you see that? Do you see that future? Is that happening? Or is that already here and I'm just now catching up? No, I mean, I think, I think it's definitely out in the future, right? But I, I think we are seeing it as sort of a runnable, pluggable thing. You know, and I think that's the other opportunity, which is I think it allows us to potentially say, hey, we're going to actually deploy most of the system for you. Like as an administrator, I'm going to deploy, you know, the sharding for you or the caching for you. And I'm just going to insert your little chunk of logic into the middle of, a, of the distributed system that I've kind of set up for you. And I think that is the other real opportunity is to, you can think of systems that have done this in the past, like Hadoop would be a great example. Hadoop, you could give it a couple Java classes and it would build this massive distributed system for you. I think that the opportunity to say like, well, what if, it, what if Hadoop hadn't been so tied to the Java ecosystem? What if you could have basically said like, oh, like I'm just gonna give you this WebAssembly binary and it'll do MapReduce for you based on the WebAssembly binary. I think that's the opportunity that we're looking at. And beyond MapReduce, I mean, MapReduce has come and gone and Spark yeah. is here and all that stuff. But like, there's other patterns like that that you could build out with the sort of little pluggable chunk of user-supplied compute. So I'm hopeful that's, that's where we're going to head. Again, I think going back to the earlier conversations, we need a bunch of people who want to go and build it or, and or we need a lot of pain in the system. And I think the challenge that we have is we're having challenges rallying enough people and we're having challenges finding the pain where it's not just sort of good enough. You know, painful, yeah. but good and painful, but good enough. Right? Yeah. Like that's the, like they say, you know, whatever perfection is the enemy of the good. I think that like painful, but not quite painful enough is sort of the enemy, <laughs> like is the enemy of the good. Right. Right. Um, tolerable. Tolerable so, is the envy of the good. Different topic, but Linux distributions, they've had LTS versions for a long time. AKS offered LTS releases in April or so of this year. KubeCon. Yeah, Why did yeah, it take KubeCon. so long for a vendor to do this? And what are the implications of doing this? Yeah, I think the idea of an LTS has been in the Kubernetes community for a really pretty long time. And I don't remember exactly when people started talking about it, but I bet it was two to three years after the creation mm. of the project. I think RBAC came first. In terms of enterprise concepts, I think RBAC <laughs> came to Kubernetes <laughs> first, but LTS was shortly after proposed. I think it was, you know, you can look back at the cross the history and just sort of see why they kind of all fizzled. You know, there's some, there's complexity there. It's, <laughs> I mean, the reason you pay for an LTS isn't because like you were happy. It's because like it's hard work, right? So you want to pay somebody for not. So I think that it, it, you shouldn't shortchange the fact that it's hard work. But I think one of the things we saw was just there's just a bunch of customer pain, especially, you know, as sort of mentioned earlier, the breadth of the market is coming to Kubernetes and has come to the Kubernetes in the last couple of years. As you see people like financial services or other like very regulated industries coming to AKS, and we just saw a ton of customers for whom 
certification of a platform could almost take as long as the lifetime of a Kubernetes release. Yeah. Right. And so they're almost like literally certifying a platform just in time for it to be deprecated. Yeah. Uh, and that was the customer pain that really drove us to say like, look, you know, we have to go do this. Right. And we will bite the bullet in terms of like the investment of engineering resources to make it happen. But at the same time, we very much want the community to come along. Right. And so we wasn't going to be like, oh, we're going to keep the patches ourselves. And oh, it's just going to be an Azure effort. It was like, we want to actually galvanize the LTS community in the Kubernetes community to produce a true LTS in the Kubernetes community. And the best way that, that I could figure out to do that was to basically say like, look, we're going. Here's where we're going. This is what we're doing. Come party with us if you want to come. And I think we've seen that start to happen and we've certainly seen the knob started to turn there. In some sense, I think it's a little bit like what Darren did with K3S, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was kind of like, look, I'm going to go do this small form factor thing and I'm going to do it in my own. Like, I'm just going and here's the patches and like, you know, and I think that that it was controversial at the time. And I think it still has some controversy in it, but ultimately it's what it took to move the Kubernetes community to start thinking about these edge devices and these edge environments. And I think it's similar with LTS. It takes someone who's willing to stand up and just be like, look, we're going. And this is what it'll look like. Because the community can have some analysis paralysis sometimes Mm. where people are like, oh, it's hard. And I don't exactly know. And have you thought about this? And what about that? And and like, once you get somebody who was willing to dive down and say like, actually, we're going to go solve some problems. And then the rest of it, we'll worry about it when we hit it. Then suddenly you galvanize a lot more energy around it. So we're excited to be leading there, but I'm certainly hopeful that it turns into a true open source community thing mm. instead of just yeah. an Azure thing. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you brought that up, LT- the LTS stuff. So I live in a, I live in one of the biggest military complexes in the U.S. <laughs> I have 12 military bases in my area. Used to Docker would always have this conference. It was the Fed Summit, essentially, up in D.C. that I would always go and present at. And these were early days. This was like people in government in 2017, 2018, maybe even 2019. You know, uh, Phil Estes was there. A lot of people that live in Virginia that are a part of the container community would go up there to speak or whatever to government employees. And there was, it was always the very typical, what would you would imagine the questions would be of either a large enterprise or a government agency of like accreditation, certification, update cycles were a huge concern. I remember at some point, I have to sneak a swarm statement into the show. No one's asked a swarm question. <laughs> That I remember specifically a conversation about adopting Kubernetes and there was a lady from, I'm going to remember, I'm going to forget the agency, but she, they weren't accredited, they weren't approved to run Kubernetes yet, but they were approved for the Docker daemon. And so I was, I was telling her on the side, I was like, swarms built in, you could just do Docker swarm init and then you would technically have some orchestration. You could, cause she was wanting, she needed to run a tool that was multi high availability or whatever. And I was like, we can get because we had just got done having a Kubernetes conversation on stage or whatever, and we we're like, well, if you until you get Kubernetes, there's this little thing. It's if your code is approved, the code's approved. Right, right, right. So I definitely, I definitely know those those struggles of people that want to use it but maybe can't. No, they can't even get permission to um, because yeah. of accreditation or certification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the Wasm stuff, I feel like we, we again we could have another we could have another show about Wasm. We talked about a lot today. I want to get one last thing, and it's dealer's choice. So. Did we, I know we didn't cover the entire list of topics that I had in there and that's fine. I'm not, we're not trying to make this a three hour podcast, but is there anything else that you're, you're excited about, you're working on that you wanted to maybe bring up anything container related? I mean, we did have a question of the standard. What's, it's a great question, but it was often a question of what's after containers, what's after orchestration, what's the next thing? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the next thing, I mean, we'll, we'll shout back, and this is the thing that I'm excited about, which is, you know, how do we build this modularized, easier to use developer system on top of containers? We still don't have expressed in Kubernetes or anything else that I've seen distributed system concepts, I feel like. Like, what is, you know, I think one of the great examples, I think, is like, imagine you have a web system. You've built a simple web server, replication, load balancer, all that stuff. You want to add caching to that. Just varnish, memcache, some like very, not very smart HTTP cache. If you think about the amount of work that you have to do to use that idea, it's shocking in my mind, right? Like, literally, it should be a one line that says like, I want this thing to be cached. And maybe cached and here's my TTL. And we're nowhere near that. Uh, I want to see us work harder on on solving some problems like that because some of them are hard. I think maybe like the LTS, some of them are hard. And so you think about like, oh, I can't quite design the perfect thing. But like there's some of them like caching that are just really easy, not complicated, could benefit a lot of people. And I feel like as a community, we need to do a better job saying like building the equivalent of like sorting. Right. Like if you imagine like if you had a developer who was working for you and they came to you and they're like, hey, look, I re-implemented heap sort so that you can sort integers. You'd be like, like, why, why did you spend a day doing that? You know, but we don't work in with the distributed systems. Like people are constantly reinventing all this stuff for no good reason. So that's my call to action, I guess. It's like, let's, let's as a community, like, let's go figure out how we actually move the state of development forward. Cause you're just not doing it today, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it's the will. Back to the, do we have the will to do it? Um, yeah. Well, the will or the marketing. I mean, I don't know. Like, it's both probably, right? Mm-hmm. Like, someone has to figure out the crack the code on like getting people excited. Yeah. Right. How do you get <laughs> people from Docker point one to Docker point three or from Docker point one to Docker point eight? Like, that, that, that's the hard part, right? What comes after the point seven or the point eight is actually, I mean, it's a different kind of work. And, and, I, you know, that, and that requires some real storytelling, right? Because people have to say, oh, wow, like that thing is going to solve this problem that I have. Right? Yeah. So I like I it. Know. Well, thank you so much, Brendan. Again, I guess like, I say this a hundred times. We could be talking for three hours on all these topics, but we all have other jobs. So th- this has been great to have you on talking about all things Azure and containers. And thanks, everyone. See Bye. you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.